Welcome to the New York Lucis Trust Full Moon Meditation Meeting. Each month we work together as a group to contact, hold, and distribute spiritual energy in the service of humanity and all life forms. To receive announcements for our meetings, please email us at newyork at lucistrust.org, L-U-C-I-S-T-R-U-S-T dot org. Well, friends, welcome to you all here in the Lucis Trust Library for our Gemini Full Moon Meeting. And welcome also to all of you who are joining us over the internet. We appreciate your participation in this service to humanity and the planet. Although physically we are in many different physical locations all around the world, on the level of the soul, of the lighted mind of the giving heart, we are one in intention, one in love, and one in activity. This afternoon we're holding a relatively rare meeting when the full moon occurs in an astrological time for the second time in a month. We have already had one Gemini meeting uh, almost a month ago at the time of the Arcane School Conference. And now we have the privilege of working with the Gemini energies once more, releasing them constructively into human consciousness. In her book, Problems of Humanity, Alice Bailey wrote, The revelation of the nature of God has been a slow unfolding process, paralleled by the evolutionary growth of the human consciousness. It is not for us to define or limit it with our concrete thinking, but to prepare for it, to unfold our intuitive perception and to live in expectation of the revealing light. It seems to me to be a good idea to explore some of the implications of this idea before we go into our meditation, for we can be sure that this will give us a sense not only of the unfoldment of the spirituality that lies at the heart of human evolution, but also a quiet conviction of optimism and hope for the future. We are all familiar with the impact of soul energy in our personal and group lives. From an individual point of view, there is first of all the touch of appropriation, when the soul is able to begin to assert control over the physical etheric body. This happens to us relatively soon after birth as we learn to coordinate the physical form. Then there is the touch of acquiescence when the emotional nature comes under the impact of soil energy. This occurs for many people at the time of adolescence when the mood swings of a rampant astral nature can seriously disturb the consciousness of the maturing child. However, these can often be tempered by a spontaneous epiphany of the soul, and this accounts in large measure for the mystical tendencies that many experience at this stage of life. One is reminded here of the keynote for Gemini for the person not yet on the path. Let instability do its work. What a perfect description of adolescence this is. And what a perfect description from the mystical point of view of the adult beginning to emerge from the chrysalis of adolescence 
is the first part of the Gemini keynote for the disciple. I recognise my other self. For the mystic, the other self uh, is the soul, of course. And the literature from every part of the world and over all time contains the most beautiful and inspiring descriptions of this core spiritual experience of the human condition. But when we leave childish and adolescent things behind, we come to a new understanding of the Gemini influence. We learn to look at everything from the vantage point of the soul and come to understand that the other self referred to in is actually the personality. And this is what the keynote for the disciple in Gemini is all about. I recognise my other self, and in the waning of that self, I grow and glow. Next, there is the touch of enlightenment on the mental plane. It marks the period when the active, roaming, questioning, doubting, experimenting mind ceases to be governed by the quality of mobility, or the guna of rajas, and comes under the influence of sattva, or the quality of spiritual poise and rhythm. The mind then learns to stop being the slayer of the real and become instead the revealer of the real. We'll come back to this later. But let us now make time for a moment of silence and then we will say together the Gayatri. O thou, who givest sustenance to the universe, from whom all things proceed, to whom all things return, unveil to us the face of the true spiritual sun, hidden by a disk of golden light, that we may know the truth and do our whole duty as we journey to thy sacred feet. These personal episodes of the soul taking possession of its vehicles are reflections of what has happened to humanity over the long course of its history, esoterically understood. What we call the Lemurian period, when a human being was simply a material form with only embryonic emotions and a complete absence of the quality of rational thought. This time saw the appropriation by the soul, saw the touch of appropriation by the soul. Atlantean times marked the period when the emotional nature started to become developed and rampant, but eventually, under the touch of acquiescence, it became subservient to the soul among the leading members of humanity. Desire gave way to aspiration, 
and the yoga of devotion, bhakti yoga, became widely practiced. This yoga actually still forms the basis of the normal esoteric religious life of humanity, and we now see it existing in a variety of forms and in varying degrees in the major world religions. And then we come to our own time, our present age, which is predominantly one of the development of the mental faculties, the ability to think, to discriminate, to analyse and so on. Gradually, very gradually, we are seeing the touch of enlightenment on the mental plane taking place within humanity. Now we all know that life is cyclic and that the gains of one life or perhaps a succession of lives are recapitulated in moments of challenge, of illumination, of discovery and insight. Even the development of the human embryo records the different stages in the evolution of the human form. From a single cell organism, through a fish-like stage with gills, through a period with a tail, until the modern human form begins to take shape. <coughs> so we should be on the lookout for episodes in the life of humanity which are in the nature of recapitulations, or perhaps better, recognitions of past experiences and achievements. With this in mind, let us consider an extraordinary event that took, over the course, took place over the course of several hundred years in the middle of the first millennium BC. Somehow, the collective mind and heart of humanity must have been ready for the processes of appropriation. Uh, for all over the then known world, movements and individuals appeared in a striking parallel development without any obvious direct cultural uh, contact. The work of these great people and movements revolutionised humanity's awareness of itself, gave insights into our true spiritual nature and anchored new spiritual values for us to live by and help create a happier and better world. The German psychiatrist and philosopher Karl Jaspers coined the term axial age for this striking phenomenon, for it truly was a pivotal age. He points out that in these few hundred years, Confucius and Lao Tzu were living in China. All the schools of Chinese philosophy came into being. India produced the Upanishads and Buddha, and, like China, ran the whole gamut of philosophical possibilities down to materialism, scepticism and nihilism. In Iran, Zarathustra taught a challenging view of the world as a struggle between good and evil. In Palestine, the prophets made their appearance from Elijah by way of Isaiah and Jeremiah to Deutero-Isaiah. Greece witnessed the appearance of Homer, of the philosophers, Parmenides, Heraclitus, Plato, of the Tragedians, of Thucydides and Archimedes. Everything implied by these names developed during these few centuries almost simultaneously in China, India and the West. It is certainly possible to see in this the flow of new understanding about the divine nature. Is it possible that we can also see in this a recapitulation, an outer rediscovery of humanity's past achievements, made in the night of time long before records of exoteric history began? Whatever the truth of this, it is important to recognise that these great people didn't just emerge into a vacuum. 
The groundwork for them had already been done by countless others, unknown to us, who had collectively created the right conditions for a series of stupendous achievements in the life of humanity. Indeed, in her biography of the Buddha, Karen Armstrong describes how so many people in 5th century BC northern India were renouncing normal life for the quest for enlightenment that they almost became a fifth caste. It is a lesson to us all that our individual striving is vitally important. Attain and conquer. You do not conquer for yourself, but your victory is important for the general good, says Agni Yoga. And as Isaac Newton so tellingly remarked in his letter to Robert Hooke in the 17th century, if I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. Here we see writ large the priceless value of group aspiration, group discovery and group sacrifice. We see how the evolutionary growth of human consciousness has again and again evoked progressive revelations about the nature of truth of God. It's interesting to note, and more than in passing as we shall see, that into this world of ferment, of religious quest, of deep philosophising, of scientific discovery, later emerged the Christ, whose simple, inspiring life and works have conditioned subsequent history in a remarkable way. Of course, his message has often been misinterpreted and misunderstood by even his most devoted followers. Sometimes it was even hijacked by those who did indeed understand, but who preferred selfish temporal power to the general uplift of humanity. Now the exciting thing is that all the signs tell us that in our own time we are actually living through a new axial age. In fact, the economist David Corton has called our present time the turning point. There is everywhere the same ferment the same quest for discovery, the same yearning for truth, the same almost desperate search for meaning. Simultaneously, of course, there is a resolute hanging on to the status quo, a denial of the, uh, the need for deep change, a search for truth misdirected into old understandings and mythologies which have passed their sell-by date, rather than risking the new, which beckons us all every day. One is at times reminded of W.H. Auden's despairing phrase, we would rather be ruined than changed. Fortunately, this view is countered by the irrefutable facts of change everywhere in the world. Let us look at some of them now. Perhaps among the most important is the emancipation and empowerment of women. While this is definitely still unfinished business, it is nevertheless remarkable what has been achieved over the past century. Women now have the vote and can stand for elected office in almost every country in the world. The international community is insistent that women's education and empowerment is key to solving the problems of poverty and violence. The Millennium Development Goals and the New Sustainable Development Goals put a great focus on this. Sometimes it's difficult to grasp in the abstract the impact that these policies can have. So particular examples are fruitful for the imagination and can incentivise further action. So here's one. 
the United Nations proclaimed the year 2012 as the International Year of Cooperatives. To mark this, the cooperative movement here in Britain held a celebration meeting in the Queen Elizabeth Conference Centre in Westminster. The head of Oxfam UK gave a talk in which she described how field workers would come across individuals or groups who had an idea for some business initiative which required a small microcredit loan to get going. In her own case, she was working in the Horn of Africa and came across a village where three women were wanting to start a beekeeping business to earn money so that they could send their children to school. She arranged for a small loan from the cooperative bank, I don't know, something in the region of perhaps £150, and set the project going. Two years later, she was again in that part of Africa and decided to visit the village to see how the project was going. To her delight, the project was working well, the loan was being repaid, the bees were producing plenty of honey, and the children dressed in their nice uniforms were going to school. So she sat down with the women and asked them what they had learnt from this experience. We learnt that if we could do this, we could do anything, was the response. And what other things have you done? They were asked. The women replied with the nodding approval of the men gathered around that the first thing they did was to stop all female genital mutilation. What an extraordinary story for an investment of about £150 Several children were going to school who otherwise wouldn't have, and a barbaric primitive practice was stopped. Not only that, but the experience must have filtered out into the surrounding communities and probably helped to lead to transformation there too. The second example of major and irreversible change in the world is how everywhere people are learning to think for themselves. Education is now almost universal and humanity is becoming skilled in the use of thought. Mental concentration is the order of the day. A business entrepreneur, a teacher, a musician, a medical researcher, an agronomist are all exponents of this. We are often told in spiritual writings that the power of the focused mind is extraordinary. Yet more often than not, the evidence for this seems to come from the outer world. An example of this is in the experience of Sir John Sulston, who most famously headed the Human Genome Project in Cambridge. Years earlier, as a PhD student, his work on the nematode worm Caenorhabditis elegans required him to observe the pattern of cell divisions under the microscope. He describes how for hours at a time, and day after day, he would shut himself in a semi-darkened room and just concentrate on what he saw under the microscope and drawing what he saw. Total concentration, in fact. The inevitable happened, beautifully delineated by Patanjali in the light of the soul, where the knower, the act of knowing, and the object of knowledge become one. He became the cell he was watching. He divided when the cell divided, he could see where all the pieces fitted because he was all totally identified as the cell, a truly spiritual experience. This brings us to acknowledge the general quality of integrity in the best of world science and of the fearlessness of those who will go wherever 
experimental truth leads them. And how much, how much has the world scientific group done to make life better for humanity? Christ fed the 5,000 in the wilderness, but science, widely used, wisely used, can feed a world population of 9 billion. Christ healed the sick, we are told. Yet science has eliminated smallpox from the face of the earth and is about to do the same for polio, which only exists now in small pockets in Afghanistan and Pakistan. One is reminded of Christ's statement, greater things will you do than I do because I go to the Father. This brings us to the third area of irreversible change. It is the result of the application of critical thinking to the world of religion and is a crucially important feature of our present time. The concentration is upon the form of religion and inevitably all the old certainties, power structures and superstitions are disintegrating under the impact of the light of reason. For people who have invested their security in these certainties, this is a very uncomfortable experience, for they're having to face the fact that the theological history of humanity, with notable exceptions of course, has made the enfolding unity of being, which we call God, very often a projection of our own very flawed image, rather than the other way around. But all this is being thankfully destroyed, and thankfully it is generating much thinking, analysis, soul-searching, lively debate and progress. Referring back to our earlier comment about the guna of rajas governing the mental processes, are we not seeing here a perfect example of this as the concrete mind, the intellect, questions ideas, challenges them, experiments, rejects, accepts? In particular, do we not see how these sorts of minds can come under the illusory belief that the material reality is the only one that life is an accidental collocation of atoms, that before birth we are not, that after death we also are not, for consciousness is the effect of brain activity. Consequently, the atheist members of the largely scientific community who are spearheading this work truly embody Alice Bailey's description of the fifth ray type as repudiating violently the unproven. Much that is of value of deep symbolism is temporarily being rejected. But from a detached point of view, I think we can see that the ground is being prepared for something new and better and more fitting for modern humanity. One of the many signs of this is the prime place of ethics in the new atheism, as these pioneers tread a path to a new understanding of truth and morality, ever, of course, the hallmark of the soul. Perhaps we can see in this new ethics the influence of sattva on the group mind of those involved in this pioneering field. The fourth and perhaps the most important area of change is in humanist perception of itself and the world. People everywhere now know that humanity is one, that the world is one, and we know this from the world of biology and DNA, from the world of paleoarchaeology, from the world of linguistics, from the world of light-based digital technology, from the world of the arts, from the world of business and commerce, from the world of comparative religion, 
from the world of philosophy, and last but not least, from the world of scientific esotericism. Each of these disciplines magnificently transcends the silly little constricting barriers erected by the fear-motivated aspects of the human personality, cultural barriers, economic barriers, nationalistic barriers, and so on. Now, all these changes, upheavals and advances, are combining into the new axial age and present a powerful invocative opportunity for a new spiritual dispensation. Into this world will emerge, actually already is emerging, the spirit of the Christ. Remembering that the Christ, the soul, is the central reality of every human being. We talk about this festival of Gemini as being both the Christ's own festival and also the festival of humanity. Perhaps one of the reasons for this is that the Christ as the God-man not only is the archetype of all humanity, but in a deep sense he is humanity. Here, to adapt Alice Bailey's quotation that I gave at the beginning, it is so important not to try to define or limit this mystery with our concrete thinking, but to prepare for it, to unfold our intuitive perception and to live in expectation of the revealing lights. What attitude should we cultivate to help in this? What can we do to help offset the false materialism of our time and allow the soul to flower? What can we do to help forge a path to a new perception of reality that is transcendent, scientific and focused on service on every level of human experience? Here is what the Tibetan suggests. We should be ready for the instant relinquishing of all that seems futile and unnecessary and inadequate to the need of the hour and for the reception of the power from on high which breaks and destroys that which has become crystallised, which has served its purpose and become old and useless. We should be ready to work as practical occultists and not only as mystical idealists upon the levels of vision as well as upon the levels of practical human affairs. So with these words firmly in our minds, let us now go into our meditation. Group fusion. We affirm the fact of group fusion and integration within the heart centre of the group of world servers, mediating between hierarchy and humanity. I am one with my group brothers, and all that I have is theirs. May the love which is in my soul, pour forth to them. May the strength which is in me lift and aid them. May the thoughts 
which my soul creates, reach and encourage them. We project a line of lighted energy towards the spiritual hierarchy of the planet, the planetary heart, the great ashram of Sanat Kumara, towards the Christ at the heart of hierarchy. Extend the line of light towards Shambhala, the centre where the will of God is known. Our interlude. We hold the contemplative mind open to the extraplanetary energies streaming into Shambhala, radiating through hierarchy. We use the creative imagination to try and see the three planetary centers. Shambhala, hierarchy and humanity gradually coming into alignment and into play.
meditation. We reflect on the seed thought for Gemini. I recognize my other self, and in the waning of that self, I grow and glow.
precipitation. We use the creative imagination to visualize the energies of light, love and the will to good pouring throughout the planet and becoming anchored on earth in prepared physical plane centers where the plan can manifest. From Shambhala through hierarchy focus through the Christ the group of world servers people of goodwill everywhere in the world physical centers of distribution Our interlude. We refocus consciousness as a group within the periphery of the great ashram. Together we affirm in the center of all love I stand. From that centre, I, the soul, will outward move. From that centre, I, the one who serves, will work. May the love of the Divine Self be shed abroad in my heart, through my group, and throughout the world. Visualize the downpouring spiritual inflow released from Shambhala through hierarchy and streaming into humanity through the prepared channel. Let us consider how these inpouring energies are establishing the pathway of light for the coming world teacher, the Christ.
distribution. As we sound the great invocation, let us visualize the outpouring of light and love and power from the spiritual hierarchy through the five planetary inlets of London, Darjeeling, New York, Geneva and Tokyo and irradiating the consciousness of the whole of humanity. From the point of light within the mind of God, let light stream forth into the minds of men. Let light descend on earth. From the point of love within the heart of God, let love stream forth into the hearts of men. May Christ return to earth. From the centre where the will of God is known, let purpose guide the little wills of men, the purpose which the masters know and serve. From the centre which we call the race of men, let the plan of love and light work out, and may it seal the door where evil dwells. Let light and love and power restore the plan on earth. Friends, thank you very much. Um, 
the Gemini full moon is tomorrow at three minutes past midday. And our next meeting is here. Uh, there's the new moon on Monday, July the 4th at 6.30 in the library here. And the next full moon, which is in the sign of Cancer, is on Tuesday, July the 19th, also here at 6.30. So thank you very much. Good journey home. Thank you for your participation in this group service. Please join us again next month. To receive announcements for our meetings, please email us at newyork at lucistrust.org. AC is blowing hot air, let O'Reilly Auto Parts help bring back the cool this summer. While you may need to eventually service your AC unit, get immediate relief with Interdynamics Arctic Freeze R134A refrigerant with leak sealer for $32.99. O'Reilly Auto Parts, better parts, better prices every day. Limit supply. See store for details. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. It's official. Every day is game day at Buffalo Wild Wings. Grab select domestic draft beers starting at $3. We know every day is for sports as mandated by Buffalo Wild Wings. Watch all the games with people that are here for the right reason with dozens of beers on tap and 21 different flavors of signature sauces and seasonings and a bounty of wings, shareables, burgers, and more. It's built for fans. It's home for sports. Buffalo Wild Wings. Wings, beer, sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly.